We are continuing our way through the book of Genesis, and we uh, find ourselves in Genesis chapter 13 this morning. So if you can turn to Genesis 13, uh, we'll read that in just a moment. But before we do that, let's pray together. Our Father, we turn to you this morning. We turn to your word. And we pray that you would help us to see Jesus in the Scriptures. Uh, Father, we know that uh, Satan would uh, blind our eyes to, to Jesus in the Scriptures, that he would seek to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so we pray that you would be at work by your Spirit to open our eyes, uh, to give us eyes to see. Uh, that you, as you said, let light shine out of darkness, that you would shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, uh, help us to see that glory this morning as we turn even to this chapter in the book of Genesis, uh, that Jesus would, would be exalted and that you would be praised by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Genesis chapter 13, uh, beginning with the first verse. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. 
Well, in uh, the Pixar film Up, there is a set of dogs who are given collars that translate their barks. And uh, about every third sentence, one of the dogs will shout out, squirrel, and all of the dogs will turn their heads and look. And it's funny because it's true, and not just for dogs. And it's true for some of us more than others. We are easily distracted. Coworkers, emails, text messages, social media, shiny things, moving things, colorful things, loud things, tragic things, painful things, pings and dings and rings from our phones. They pull our attention away from the moment. Our eyes are diverted. Our focus is hijacked. Most likely, some of you in this room have been distracted already since the beginning of this sermon. It's all right. I'll give you a minute to come back. Well, there are three things that we want to talk about here this morning uh, from chapter 13 of Genesis. Uh, Your eyes direct your destiny. The things that are seen are transient and therefore look to the unseen. Your eyes direct your destiny. The things that are seen are transient. Therefore, look to the unseen. Uh, but before we jump in, let's, let's step back and consider the story as a whole. Uh, you may remember in the second half of chapter 12 last week, uh, we saw Abram left the promised land. It was not his most shining moment. There was a famine in the land, and though God had called him to this place, Abram up and left. Now, God used that for good. Uh, like the story of Israel in the book of Exodus, God's people would flourish in the land of slavery. And Genesis 12, verse 20 emphasizes this when it says uh, that Pharaoh sent Abram away with his wife and all that he had. Uh, notice thir- chapter 13, verse 1 repeats parts of that verse almost exactly. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had. But it keeps going in 13 verse 1, and Lot with him. The writer is setting us up. Uh, In fact, uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13, even into verse 5, uh, give us the backdrop of this story. Uh, Verse 2 tells us that Abram was rich, very rich. In fact, the phrase very rich echoes the phrase severe famine in chapter 12 verse 10. That may seem weird, but uh, the word for severe and rich are the same word. It means heavy or glorious. Uh, The severe famine tested Abram's faith in chapter 12, and now Abram's exceeding wealth will do the same in chapter 13. Both good and bad tests our faith. Abram returns then to Bethel in verse 3, quote, the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Well, why emphasize that? Abram is returning. Uh, He's returning to God. He's returning to God's purpose for him in the land. He's returning to uh, the place of faith. This is a kind of repentance for Abram. He fell away, as it were, when he left and went to Egypt, but he is back in God's revealed plan for his life. And this also is a return then to the place of obedience and worship. Verse 4, Abram returns to the place where he had made an altar at first. And again, he calls upon the name of the Lord. And then verse 5 kind of finishes up the background for us. It says, uh, uh, chapter 13, verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And this verse hints at the conflict that is to come. Lot, too, has become rich in the land of Egypt. 
Uh, Not one, but two wealthy men have returned to the land of promise. Verses 6 and 7 then list for us three points of conflict. First, the land could not support them both. And, And this is repeated twice in the same verse, just in case you missed it the first time. And so you have kind of another problem with the land. There was famine in chapter 12. Well, now there's scarcity in chapter 13. There's just not enough land to go around. Coupled with this uh, geographic problem, there is an interpersonal one. Strife between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. The men who oversee their respective flocks and herds are quarreling over pasture land. Finally, besides the geographic problem and the interpersonal one, there's an additional kind of external constraint. The Canaanites and the Perizzites are in the land. Now, the point of saying that is that this lack of land uh, is caused by the fact that there are other people in the land. The land is a limited resource claimed by multiple parties. Well, how do most of us respond when, when there are limited resources? You know how you respond, right? One final piece of cake. What do you do? It's a land grab. Who can get to it first? Now, perhaps, since we were brought up being told we have to share, we try to do it secretly, at night, after the boys are in bed, hypothetically speaking. Right? When resources are scarce, we hoard. We, we try to get as much as we can. We stake our claim. Sometimes, literally, we put our name on things. There's a, a Seinfeld episode where a, a suit is going to go on sale, and one of the characters, George, wants the suit, but it's the only one in the store. And another customer of the same shape and size as George wants it as well. And so the night before it goes on sale, George hides the suit in the store so that the day of the sale, George can walk in, retrieve the suit from its hiding place, and purchase the suit at sale price. You see, scarcity increases desire and even ingenuity. Amazon knows this, right? Have you ever looked at a book on Amazon and it says, only three left in stock, order soon. On top of this scarcity, though, there was the conflict between the herdsmen. How do we respond to conflict? Often blame or manipulation or self-pity. But how does Abraham respond to this whole situation? First, he he actually expresses his commitment to peace in verse 8. Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Uh, Literally, we we are brothers, right? They're not brothers. Lot is Abram's nephew, but they're they're related to one another, right? They, they, They belong to one another. He says, Let's not argue. We're brothers after all. It's not right for brothers to argue. A second, Abram demonstrates that commitment by putting Lot first. These aren't empty words that he's saying. Verse 9, he says, then the whole land is before you, Lot. Abraham doesn't look out for his own interests. He doesn't insist on his own way. He, the elder, gives way to Lot the younger. Abram could have staked his claim and sent Lot on his merry way. But Abram knows that God has made promises to him And he doesn't have to stake his claim. He can wait on God, which really puts the ball then in Lot's court. And and Abram's gracious proposal leads to Lot's unbelieving choice. Uh, Everything in the next three verses tells us that this is bad. Uh, First, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. 
Now, Abram's going to do the same thing in a moment, and when we get there, I'll tell you why Abram's actions are totally different. But for now, consider that repeatedly in the book of Genesis, people have seen and then made some bad decision, Uh, starting with Eve, who saw the tree was good for food and then took it. And then the sons of God in, in Genesis 6 saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Ham saw his father's nakedness. And then in chapter 12, the princes of Pharaoh saw the beauty of Sarai, and she was taken into Pharaoh's house. Well, what does Lot see? He saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And so unlike the the recent famine in the land, south of the Jordan was fruitful like Eden and like Egypt. But the last things we saw in Eden and Egypt were not really good. Nevertheless, Lot chooses the Jordan Valley and journeys east. East, like Adam and Eve when they left Eden. So Lot leaves the promised land headed east. And he is leaving the promised land. Uh, Verse 12 tells us that Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Abram stays in the promised land. Lot moves just outside its border as far as Sodom. Lot moves, the writer tells us, to the wicked city, verse 13, full of great sinners. Writer, in every way, he's trying to tell us this is a bad decision on Lot's part. This is not a good idea. But what of Abram? Uh, Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes and look. Now, what's the difference between Lot lifting up his eyes and Abram? Well, Lot looks for self-interest. He's looking around going, what is the best land for me? Abram looks according to the command and promise of God. It's the same action, but one is done in self-interest and the other is done in faith. And so verses 14 to 17 say this, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so God solidifies and clarifies his promises to Abraham. This land, everything you see, I will give to you, and I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. And so Abram walks through the land, uh, which is a, actually was a, was a legal act of taking possession. Legally and before God, the, the land is now Abram's. This uh, story, this episode, rather than ending in exile from Egypt, as chapter 12 did, It begins and ends with Abram's worship, showing us rather than telling us that Abram is in the right place. He begins and ends uh, worshiping the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, what are we to make of this story? Uh, Let's look at our three points. Uh, First, your eyes direct your destiny. Second, the things that are seen are transient. Third, therefore, look to the unseen. First, your eyes direct your destiny. Uh, In a book called The Art of Racing in the Rain, uh, the writer tells us, in racing, they say that your car goes where your eyes go. The driver who cannot tear his eyes away away from the wall as he spins out of control will meet that wall. Uh, The driver who looks down the track as he feels his tires break free will regain control of his vehicle. 
And, and maybe in, in a little less dramatic ways, you, you know how this works. Right? When you're driving down the road and you begin to look at something off the road, right, you look there and, and you begin to swerve in that direction. Your eyes direct your destiny. And you can see how that plays out in this story. Lot looks with his eyes at what his eyes can see. He focuses on what looks good to him. But where does he end up? In the wicked city of Sodom, the city of destruction. Uh, verse 10 tells us this was before the land, uh, before the Lord destroyed Sodom. That's where that story is going. He is playing with fire. He is settling down in the city of destruction because it looked good at the time. Abram, on the other hand, looks to God's promise. God says, lift your eyes and look around. Abram looks in obedience to the promises of God. And so the first question for us is simple. It's where are your eyes? And I mean that both literally and figuratively. Where are your eyes looking? And where is your mind's eye thinking? Your eyes direct your destiny. If you let your eyes wander, your thoughts, your heart, your imagination, your body will eventually follow. So where are your eyes? What are you staring at day by day? Where do you let your mind's eye wander? Are you allowing the world's picture of the good life shape your thoughts, your desires, your home? Guys, especially though not exclusively, are you looking at, at porn or staring at the women around you? Students, has the lure of academic distinction and accolades invaded your dreams? What you watch, what you listen to, what you read, what you hear day after day, that will shape your desires and direct your steps. And so first, your eyes direct your destiny. We see that in Abram and Lot. Second, let's add to that, the things that are seen are transient. Where does Lot look? He looks with his eyes at what he can see, fruitfulness in the Jordan Valley. The land of Sodom is like a well-watered garden for the time being. Now that looks good, but it's also a place of wickedness, we're told in verse 13 a place soon to be destroyed, according to verse 10. And what we need to remember is that Sodom is a picture of the present age. Uh, we, we read uh, Luke chapter 17 earlier where Jesus says that the return of Jesus will be like the days of Lot. People will be eating and drinking, buying and selling, but in an instant, judgment came upon Sodom and the city was destroyed. Now, we're not there yet in the story. We'll get there. That's what's going to happen later in Genesis. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 7, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, just like Sodom, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus says in Luke 21, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. And make no mistake, right? This world is destined for judgment, no less than Sodom was. How ought that to shape the way we live? Again, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You see, how, how foolish is it to store up treasure that will soon disappear? Uh, that doesn't mean we can't own things in the present, but, 
but how do we use them? Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those they as those as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now Paul's not saying that husbands should neglect their wives. <laughs> or that those who have possessions should throw them away. But he's saying we need to be thinking about things, not from the perspective of this age, but from the perspective of the age to come. The present form of this world is passing away. It won't last. It doesn't matter how good it looks in the moment. This world is passing away. Lot's problem was he directed his eyes to the things that are seen. And what does Paul say about that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, the things that are seen are transient. Lot set his heart on the city of destruction, on those things that were passing away. Why would anyone do that? It looked good at the time. It's as simple as that. When we live by sight, by what our eyes see, by appearances, the present age can look pretty good. And so where are your eyes? What do you focus on? What has your attention? If it is anything, anything in the present age, it is passing away. That doesn't mean we ignore the present age. It doesn't mean we, that, that everyone just quits their jobs and, and just waits for what is to come. But while we live in the present, we live for the age to come. We use the things of this age to further our enjoyment of God, His kingdom, His purposes, and His glory. Peter, again, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, puts it this way. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. See, your eyes direct your destiny. Where you look will shape who you are. And if you know the present form of this world is passing away, where then are we to look? So your eyes direct your destiny. The things of this world are transient. The things that are seen are transient. So, so then where are we to look? Uh, third point, therefore, look to the unseen. Uh, sometimes Paul uh, contrasts faith and sight. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. But earlier in the same book, he implies that faith itself is a kind of sight. And so 2 Corinthians 4, 18, he says, we look not to, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Faith is the ability to look to the unseen, which is to say faith takes God at his word and, and imagines, right, to, to see with the mind's eye the fulfillment of God's promises. This is what Abram was learning to do. God had promised him the land, 
He had ignored that promise and left for Egypt in the previous chapter. But while there, though Abram was faithless, God was faithful. God kept his promises to Abram in Egypt. God cursed those who cursed Abram and blessed Abram despite his sin. Abram was learning that God was faithful. And this is why when a new trial comes, Abram is able to walk in faith. He doesn't grasp for the land. He, he doesn't push Lot aside. He, he, he doesn't bite and devour to get his way. He offers Lot first choice. He holds loosely the things of this life because he holds tightly to the promises of God. Hebrews 11 verses 9 through 10 says that by faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram was holding on to the promise of God, of a promised land and a heavenly city. And God rewarded Abram's faith by making his promise even clearer, by reiterating and confirming his covenant to Abram. I want you to think about how, how would that change the way you love How would it change the way you handle conflict? How would it change the way you serve? If you were not seeking, if you were seeking treasure in heaven and not treasure on earth, if you saw yourself as a pilgrim here, not not a citizen, but a resident alien, at best a dual citizen living in this age before the age to come, how would that shape the way you treat others? How would it shape the way you deal with disappointment? Perhaps you could give without expecting anything in return because your hope was in the age to come. You could use the things of this life for the good of others, knowing that that your good things, your best things are yet to come. You could let slights to your reputation or insults or digs or rude comments, you could let them go, knowing that God will openly vindicate us on the last day. You would seek to store up treasure in heaven through obedience to your Father now rather than amassing treasure on earth, which moth and rust destroy. But how can, we, how can we make such a change? How can we stop living for the seen things and live for the unseen? I mean, they're unseen after all, right? Everything else is right in front of our eyes. And the answer is, of course, consider Jesus. It was because of him, it is because of him, that we can live as pilgrims here and now with such confidence. First, Jesus did not grasp hold of what he had in heaven, but he became a pilgrim. He experienced distance from his father. He he, he experienced life outside of glory. He experienced homelessness. He experienced the transitory, even the transitoriness of life itself. He came into this world. He lived. He suffered. He died. But he did that in hope. Hebrews tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. His eyes were not set on a happy life. His eyes were not set on personal comfort and ease. His eyes were not set on establishing his portfolio. His eyes were not set on saving a nest egg. His eyes were not set on finding job fulfillment. His eyes were not set on the passing or fading things of this present age. His eyes were set on the joy set before him the joy of pleasing his Father, the joy of the reward of his obedience, the joy of our salvation through his work, the joy of our joy. These things kept Jesus going through the hard things to the cross unto death. And then on the third day, he rose. 
The father rewarded the son, not by reaffirming his promise, but by fulfilling it. The father rewarded the son with resurrection life. And it is because of the resurrection that we can live as pilgrims. We have evidence that God keeps his promises, that pilgrims reach their destinations, that this world is not the end of the story, that, we, that, that if we live for the age to come, we will live to enjoy it. Even if we die and are buried in the grave, we will rise to enjoy the life that God has promised us. When we believe in Jesus, Scripture says we are united to Him. In fact, we are raised with Him spiritually and truly. And when He returns, we will be raised with Him bodily and eternally. And so where are your eyes? Your eyes direct your destiny. The things that are seen are transient. Therefore, look to the unseen. Don't be distracted by the things of this age. They, they glitter and they glisten and they flash and they spin, but they don't last. To set your heart on them is to set your heart on destruction. Don't be distracted. Rather, as Paul put it in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do not set your eyes on the seen, but on the unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for... Abraham and his pilgrimage, which teaches us what it looks like to walk and live as pilgrims in this world. Uh, teach us to live as pilgrims, seeking to honor you in the present, in the hope of things to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.